Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 21. Then we set out from Orab and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Gadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set this land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near and said to me, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took the 12 men from you and one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and spied it out. 26 through 31. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Behold, the Lord hated us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us, the, give us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. And then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will he himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Junephah. He shall, he shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for, you, as for your little ones, who you said would not become prey, I pray, your children, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go into, in there. And to them I will give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And I, the Lord said, and the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I shall not be in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the commandment, the command of the Lord, and presumptuously, presumptuously went up into the hill country. And then the Amorites, who lived in that hill country, came out against you and chased you as bees do, and beat you down into Seir, as far as Ormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, 
but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days in the land that you remained. So the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Would you um, remain standing for just a second while we just commend uh, this time uh, in prayer? Uh, Father, we, um, these are confusing passages, and we confess we're not exactly sure um, what this has to do with a modern people living in Denver. And uh, so we know that it does, and we want to humble ourselves before you, and we want our heart uh, to be... Um, we want it to be fertile soil to receive your word. Uh, we want to listen with faith. We want to listen um, expecting for you to challenge us and to change us. Uh, we want to listen knowing that you know better. And Lord, this morning, I also uh, want to dedicate just a moment to pray and give thanks for uh, Pastor Matt Morjinski and Grace and Peace, as even this morning, they are particularizing You've been so kind to them, and we love them, and we're so thankful to be partners in gospel ministry. So as they have a momentous uh, service this morning, we just ask that you would be with that congregation as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, DPC. Uh, when I was 18 years old, uh, you know, I was accepted into the Air Force Academy, uh, but I was pretty nervous about crossing over into this new path of life. I don't come from a family that has a long line of military service or anything like that. So it was a huge unknown. I mean, I knew enough to know that it was incredibly rigorous and uh, that it's gonna, it would take a lot of sacrifice on my part. Uh, so, like most sons, you know, I went to my father, my dad, to give me some advice. Dad, what do you think I should do? Now, I expected my dad to say, yes, you should do it, or no, you should not do it, uh, but I didn't get either response. Instead, what my dad did is he told me a story. He said, son, did you know that when your grandfather and grandmother crossed over into the United States when they immigrated in 1946, that my parents didn't barely have anything at all? They had just a few belongings and a few children, nothing of note. And son, did you know that my father, your grandfather, literally built the house that they slept in and lived in? Could you imagine the rigor and the sacrifices that they had to make. And that's it. And that's where it ended. That was my dad's response. He didn't say anything more than that. Uh, I asked my dad a question, and he responds like that. What is my dad doing in that moment? He's using a story of the past, people I know, to encourage and motivate my future choices, right? Advice via a story. Uh, we do this all the time, don't we? We use stories from the past to encourage us 
to act in a certain way. Or sometimes we use stories that help keep us from doing other things, right? Well, welcome to Deuteronomy. So today we are going to begin our study in the very last book in the writings of Moses. And uh, Deuteronomy, as we've been learning through churchwide discipleship, is a series of farewell sermons that Moses delivers to the people of Israel just before they cross over the Jordan and enter into the promised land. And it's important to note that Moses himself does not get in. At this point, Moses gathers all the people of Israel together and he tells them a story. See, what had happened is 40 years earlier, they were delivered from Egypt, and they're finally going back to their homeland. But while they were enslaved all those years earlier in Egypt, other people moved into the land, and these occupiers were rough and tough. And God promised that that he would be with them. But what should have been an 11-day trip turned into a 40-year journey in the desert. And because of their absolute like rebellion and disobedience, God did not allow that original audience to enter into the land, not even Moses. So right before Moses is going to die, he gathers all the children of that first generation, so the second generation, and he tells them a story about their parents. And why does Moses tell them a story as his sort of farewell sermon? It's to motivate them, to shape them, to encourage them to cross over into the promised land with courage. And that is what Deuteronomy is all about. Unlike their parents, and even Moses himself, he wants to help them to cross over from death to life. Now listen really closely. This event of crossing the Jordan from the desert into the land is an event that later your New Testament authors are going to use to describe every person's life. All of us. That's to say, this story, strangely, has everything to do with you. Moving from desert to joy, from slavery to freedom, from death to life. And so how does does Moses do this with a story? So what we're going to do is we're going to evaluate the features of this passage that we just heard. And it's long, so we just had to, you know, we had to pick parts uh, of it. We're going to address, we're going to look at this farewell address, and we're going to understand better. By understanding this, we're going to understand our hearts our spirituality, and our God. Three points this morning. Our hearts, our spirituality, and our God. Uh, so with that introduction, let's just jump right into it, understanding our heart. Um, if you've ever read a, uh, books about adopting children, I have, or really for that matter, just parenting books, uh, you're going to find a, a, a major theme that kind of comes out is this uh, topic of attachment, It is important that children develop meaningful attachments to their parents because as the child uh, development specialist tells us, it builds trust, right? Learning to trust is crucially, uh, is a crucial developmental step, right? As the child develops into an adult, if he or she never learns to trust, that child will exhibit 
extremely self-absorbed, self-obsessed behaviors and will be afraid of committing to anything at all. And let me just say that um, the Bible, its anthropology is, is pretty pessimistic. The Bible says that all of us have this allergy to trusting. We struggle to attach to anything. We're always protecting our interests. That's what, we're, that's what we're always doing, whether we know it or not. So for instance, when my girls were young, I had three of them. You know, my three girls are all born in the same year. So, you know, the, we put them all in three high chairs next to one another. And these three babies are fully dependent on us. So three, four, five times a day, we prepared food. We fed them like little birds, you know, chirping for the worm. Uh, we cleaned them up. Uh, we snuggled them every night. We bathed them. And we did this, all of this, all this feeding and this whole process, three, four times a day, seven days a week. 12 months a year, our kids never missed a meal, all right? In other words, uh, my children are inundated with evidence that we love them, that we care for them, and that we're not going to give up taking care of them. And yet, when I want one little bite of ice cream from that three-year-old, what do they say? No, mine. My ice cream, right? Despite all the evidence that they can trust me to provide for them, it is difficult for them to overcome this lack of trust, even though I blessed them with yummy food for 756 meals straight. Except for that one time, it was awkward. No, I'm kidding. We always fed them. Against all the evidence, it's hard for them to believe that I would be faithful once again. Can I suggest to you that that is what that what's present in my children's heart and what's present in our hearts is what's going on here in our text with Israel. Notice how Moses tells the story. Notice the features. So verses 19 through 21, God says he commissions them to enter the land. And what is their response? Look in verse 27. Uh, you murmured, talking about the original generation, you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> he hated us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? The Lord hated us. And here's what we learn about the human heart. Their main problem and our main problem is not that we struggle to believe in God. Rather, we struggle to believe that he is good. We struggle to believe that we can count on him, contrary to all of the evidence. So in verse 31, he says he has this, true, this proven track record, right? In the, in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And contrary to all the evidence, they still said, God hated us. He hates us. And what we learn about our heart is that it's plagued with the same unbelief. Not unbelief that God exists. Unbelief that God will take care of us. 
our primary problem with God is not that we break all of his rules. Our primary problem is that we don't trust him. And therefore, we break his rules by taking matters into our own hands. And we do life our way because we only trust ourselves. Well, let me see if I can't get really practical. Uh, since I'm kind of new to Denver, I'm kind of trying to be like a, a, a observe few things. So, so far as I can tell, there's some overlap with the rest of the country, but the, the sort of Denver uh, idols are um, money, uh, sexual expression, and recreation. I'm still getting my brain around recreation a little bit. I got to put some thought. But uh, it's interesting because money and uh, sexual expression is really where Christians stand out in our culture. It's the way we think about money and sexual ethics right? It's very different. And so in our culture, in this culture, Christians are very weird. We're outliers. We're weirdos. We're countercultural with respect to those areas. Um, You know, Tim Keller, y'all probably heard this before. He says, uh, speaking about the early church, uh, Israel and the early church, he says, uh, the pagans were generous with their bodies and stingy with their money, but Christians were generous with their money and stingy with their bodies, right? That, that was God's plan for his people. And now we find ourselves in a similar position with Israel and the early church. We struggle to obediently leave the desert, cross over into life. And we hear God's ethic, and we struggle to believe that he knows what he's doing. God says, don't you believe me when I say that you must not spend all of your money on yourself? That if you do, it will ruin your heart. And not only your heart, it's going to ruin your children's heart. Do you believe me that when I tell you that being generous with the poor and investing in the proclamation of the gospel is how I want my resources to be invested What wells up in your heart when you hear God say that to you? Do you hear, God hates me? Or, God loves me and he wants what's best for me. Uh, Do this this same exercise with sex, right? God has a specific limited vision of how we're allowed to express our sexuality. And, And for some people, this means you might be single for the rest of your life. For some of you, it means that you can't be in a relationship who, with someone who doesn't share your faith, right? It limits the field, and that's hard. Like, that's really, really hard. For some of you, it means that you have to remain celibate your whole life because you're walking this earth with maybe same-sex attraction, and, 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 you're, and you're trying to stay faithful to the Lord, Or some of you who are married, it means that sexual intimacy is not about you. It's not for you principally. It's about serving the other person and not reducing your partner into an object to be consumed. And God knows this is not easy. And it wasn't easy to cross over into the promised land. But listen, God's not trivial with your heart. When you hear God's exhortation to cross over into life, cross over into trust, what wells up in your heart? 
God hates me. Or God loves me. He's for me. He made me. I can trust God. He knows what's best for me. Can you trust him? Do you trust that he's good? Or do you say, God, who are you to tell me how to live my life? You're fired. I know this is difficult, extremely difficult. When Israel looked at the promised land, they thought, if we cross over, we're going to get killed by giants and people with walled cities. There are obstacles, really difficult obstacles reside in our hearts. Many of our dreams don't include God's instructions. Yes, this is so stinking hard. But where where Israel began to rebel was when they saw obstacles, they saw these hard things, and they thought that it meant that they had other options. They didn't. And we don't either. We've, We've got to obey his perfect and good will. Moses tells this story so that you and I can understand our hearts Our biggest problem is not unbelief, not in God's uh, existence. It's our unbelief in his goodness, even though there's evidence to the contrary. You can trust him. You can trust him. Let's continue this examination of the features in this farewell speech. So, so far, we, we see how this story helps us to understand our hearts. But it also, our second point, is it helps us understand our spirituality, So in the New Testament, uh, Jesus tells a parable. Uh, We usually call it the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, In this parable, there's a father, a good father, and two sons. The younger son didn't love the father. He loved the father's money. So he didn't obey him, took his inheritance, and he lived the life he thought he wanted. The older son didn't love the father either. Uh, He loved the father's money as well. But instead of living a rebellious life, he lived a really religious life in order to get the father's inheritance. But what's important to note here, which Jesus is critiquing in the parable, is that both sons had a plan for getting their own way. Either being really bad or being really good, but both of them have selfish underpinnings. Now, this parable typifies our spiritual disposition towards God. And we see both of these in the life of Israel. And in fact, arguably Jesus was talking about Israel first and foremostly. Uh, Think about it like this. After God had miraculously saved Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt, uh, it was two weeks on the Sinai Peninsula and the people start grumbling and complaining. And what did they say? You remember? I don't care what God says. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to do life my way, right? Israel foolishly wanted to be independent from God, but then something happens. That technique didn't work, so they tried the older brother technique, something different. Look at verses 41 through 43. Look there in your Bibles. Then you answered me, oh, we sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord God commanded us. 
And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up to the hill country. He said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So we spoke to you, you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. All right, so what happened there? It looked like they were sorry. It appeared that they decided to obey God. Nope, that's not actually what happened at all. They were simply trying to manipulate God with their good behavior. And God would have none of it. See, they were sorry about all of the consequences, but they weren't sorry about breaking trust with God, you see. You see that? Repentance without real heart change is manipulation. Are y'all hearing that? They were still trying to get God to do what they wanted. You can be rebellious and try to get what you want, or you can try to be really, really good to get what you want, as if God could be bought. But both responses have the same fundamental root. And this is a really dangerous strand of spirituality. On one hand, a person is rebellious, has no regard for God's law, and religious people look at them with judgment, right? Why? Because they just want what they want, and they don't care about God. And on the other hand, a person is really good. They read the Bible. They give a little bit of money. They fast forward through those parts of Games of Thrones. You know what I'm talking about, because they're respectable people. Uh... Y'all don't even know the joke. Okay, that's good. Y'all are holy. All right, all right. Um, they uh, go to church, you know, most of the time when nothing else is going on. Uh, and they think, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I fast forward through the parts of Games of Thrones. Thank you. Um, God owes me. God owes me. Listen, that person, they want what they want to the Lord is not the religious person's deepest love. The law is just their way of getting God to do their will. That kind of spirituality says, God, look at me, reward me. But that's not biblical spirituality. Biblical spirituality says, look at God, look at his works, I will follow him. I will follow him. If you don't understand this point, you'll never cross over into life. You'll die in the desert. Every time you hear God's law, if you don't understand this point, every time you hear God's law, it will feel like someone is tying weights to your feet and throwing you in the ocean. It'll feel suffocating. Until you can see that the law and God's will is a product and a response to love, and not a precondition for it, then you will never see its beauty. You'll never see God's law as something that's fundamentally good to you. It's his goodness to you. Instead, God's will and instructions will just be negotiable to you. You'll do them only if you get something in exchange, and if it makes sense with what you already believe about the world. Don't be seduced by that strand of false spirituality. 
It was bad for Israel. It's bad for us. Moses starts with grace. God rescues you from slavery. God goes with you. He goes before you into the wilderness. He is for you while you were still a hopeless slave. Now, because you're rescued and because you're loved, listen to his instructions. He is for you. That is a part of his grace too, you see. He is for you. And this leads us to our final point, which will also serve as my conclusion. In Moses' farewell speech to Deuteronomy, he retells Israel's, that first generation's story to help shape this next generation's uh, cross, help them cross into this promised land. And he doesn't want them to make the same mistake of their parents. And so he tells them a story and he helps them to understand their own hearts, right? The nature of unbelief. And he helps them to understand their spirituality. And there's good and bad spirituality. And so now we get to Moses' final and most important agenda. He tells this history to help them and to help us understand God himself more profoundly. Now, to this point, Israel has been a hot mess. They are a train wreck. Their time in the wilderness, as we learned in Numbers, has been awful. And the reader is left with the question, why is God still allowing them to enter into the promised land? And the key is that in verse 35, God says that he swore to their fathers that he would give them the land. So what, what is, um, what's God talking about there? Well, back in Genesis 15, the very, the very first book in the writings of Moses, God makes this covenant with Abraham saying that he would bless them and give them a land and give them descendants that are as numerous as all the stars in the sky. Now, back then, when you make a covenant, you cut them. You cut the covenant. You cut a treaty. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are these things called suzerain treaties. It's the model that they use in the ancient Near East that's reflected in the Bible. This is where a king would enter into a relationship with a vassal or just an inferior party, right? They're not equals. One makes the promise of protection, and the other makes the promise of service and loyalty. And then they cut a treaty. In other words, they take several animals, and they cut these animals in half, and it was really bloody, and then the inferior party walks between the two bloody halves. And symbolically, it communicated that if you do not live up to your end of the treaty, then may what happened to these poor innocent animals happen to you. So usually the kings don't walk through just the vassal. And if the vassal did not do his part, he was punished. But if the king did not do his part, the vassal still suffers. The vassal had to bear the penalty either way. But in Genesis 15, when God and Abraham cut this covenant between them, something very strange happened. God makes Abraham to fall asleep, and God alone, in the form of a fiery torch, very similar to that pillar of fire that led Israel in the desert, passes through these bloody pieces of the animal. Now, we're just reading this like whatever, but this was shocking 
to the original listeners. Here we have a king making a unilateral covenant with his people so that if either party breaks the covenant, God alone would pay the price. God is the only one who signs the contract. God will guarantee the contract, even if Israel totally messes this thing up. And so in this context, God says, my people cross over from death into life, go into the land, and they say, no, we're scared. If we go, we're going to get torn to pieces. And God says, don't you see? There is nothing that they can do to hurt you, not in an eternal sense. The only one who will be cut to pieces is me. There is nothing ultimately that they can do to hurt you. Listen, church, eventually Israel enters into the land and they broke the covenant. And you and me, we've broke the covenant. And so why doesn't God just give up on us? It's because God was torn to pieces for us. He was hung on a cross. Jesus crossed from life to death so that you and your children would cross from death unto life. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're like all about. That's the very backbone of all of this. This has got to be your most fundamental belief and understanding of yourself. I mean, listen to these words of Jesus. These are the red ones in your New Testament. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Red letters. If you let this precious farewell speech of Moses in Deuteronomy sink into your bones, if you believed it and let it shape you, it would completely change your life if you really believed it. You would begin to understand the unbelief in your heart. You would be able to see the difference between healthy, biblical, and toxic spirituality. And you would see that the Lord, you would see the Lord in a way that motivates you to make any sacrifice for him. Nothing would be off limits. Denver Press, nothing is off limits to the Lord. We belong to him. Bury that deep into your heart. Amen.